Chapter 40 of The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Story of the World, A Simple History for Boys and Girls by Elizabeth O'Neill. Chapter 40 the story of canada to many men from the earliest times there has come a strange longing which they cannot put aside it is a longing to go out and travel to the unknown parts of the world to see what they are like what people live there what these people do and what things grow there it was this longing which drove columbus across the ocean to discover america but Columbus was not really the first to find America. The Northmen, whose land is Norway and Sweden, had ever loved adventure, as they do still. In the last few years, men from Norway have sailed right out many times to the frozen north and to the center of the snowy south, which we call the South Pole. It was when Ethelred the Unready was ruling in England in the eleventh century that Leif Erikson sailed off towards the west, just when some of the other Northmen were swooping down upon England. After many days he and his fellow sailors came to a land which was probably that which we now call Canada, the northern part of North America but the Northmen sailed back to their own country, and it was nearly five hundred years before anyone from Europe visited Canada again. This time it was an Englishman, John Cabot, who set sail from Bristol and came to Canada. Again it was only a visit, and the Englishman did not try to settle there. But fishermen learned soon that good fishing was to be had near the new country and they commenced to sail and fish round the island of newfoundland and the coasts of north america just thirty-seven years after cabot's voyage in fifteen thirty four a french sailor was sent by king francis i to see what he could find jacques cartier as he was called was even more venturesome than cabot he sailed up the Gulf of St. Lawrence to the place where Montreal now stands, and it is to him that we owe the name Canada, for it is said that when he met with some red Indians who lived in the land in those days, they pointed to their huts, saying Canada, meaning to point out their village to him. In their language the word Canada means village, but Cartier thought they were telling him the name of the land, and so Canada, or Canada, he called it. The First Colonist in Canada No one from Europe so far had attempted to stay in Canada, for Cartier sailed back again like Cabot, and it was almost seventy years before the next visitors came to the country and began to build themselves houses. Samuel de Champlain, who was the leader this time, is the first great name in the story of Canada. He will always be remembered through the beautiful Lake Champlain, which he discovered, and which was called after him. 
Champlain was a very wise and brave man, and when he arrived in Canada in the year 1603, he at once made friends with the Indians. He had made his plans, and intended to stay in Canada, for he had been sent out by a man to whom the French king had given the right to be the only one allowed to trade with Canada, and sell the furs which were got from the wild animals there. The first thing to do was to find a place where he could live, and so Champlain sailed up the river St. Lawrence and round the coast until he made up his mind to settle at Port Royal, now called Annapolis, in Nova Scotia. Champlain had soon to go back to France, but he went back again to Canada, and this time founded the city of Quebec in 1608. He had made friends with the Huron Indians, but had to fight with the fierce tribe called the Iroquois. Champlain was a Catholic and a very religious man. He did not mind much about the fur trader or founding towns and settlements. What he did care for was ever to find new places and to bring his religion to the people whom he met. He commenced a settlement at Montreal, and thinking to find a new way to China, sailed up the Ottawa River. But the settlements he made were not well protected, and about the time he founded Montreal, the English from Virginia took Port Royal, and in 1629 an English fleet took Quebec. Champlain was taken prisoner to England, but four years later Canada was given back to the French, and he returned to Quebec, where he died in 1635. Struggles with the Indians Champlain's work was not carried out without much fighting with the savage and treacherous Red Indians, and the warfare went on for many years longer. It was not a life to persuade many people to leave their homes in France, but many people did go. There were the missionaries, black robes, as the Indians called these priests, who were the bravest colonists of all. They thought it was their duty to go out and tell the Indians about God. Yet, thirty years after Champlain's death, there were only about two thousand Frenchmen in Canada. Some of these pushed their way through the thick forests without paths, against wild beasts and savage men, to the great Lake Superior, and south to where the great river Mississippi enters the ocean, and founded a colony which they called Louisiana, after their King Louis. Some of the priests in Canada thought that the Indians were being made wilder and fiercer through the white man, giving them brandy and other spirits to drink, and they tried to prevent it, but did not succeed very well. One night, in the August of the year 1689, the Iroquois took a terrible revenge on the French. It was a dark and stormy night, and the people in a small village near Montreal had gone to bed, when suddenly there burst in upon them a large number of Indians. Two hundred of the colonists were killed at once by one thousand five hundred Iroquois, and they were indeed happier than those who were left, for a hundred of these were carried off and tortured in the most horrible ways before they were killed. 
At this time, a brave Frenchman called Louis de Baud had been sent back to France, but when he returned, he fought against the Iroquois so fiercely that in a few years he had so thoroughly conquered them that no Frenchman ever needed to fear them again. The French king, Louis the Fourteenth had been thinking what a glorious chance he had of making a great empire in America, and Louis de Baud tried to bring this about. So he attacked the English colonists in New England to win their land for France. But the fighting went very badly for the French, and when peace was made in the year 1713 by the Treaty of Utrecht, they had to give up the land where they had first settled Nova Scotia, as well as Newfoundland, and the land round Hudson Bay. Still, they held the land round the St. Lawrence, and they tried to make up for what they had to give to England by pushing farther west and founding new towns. One very brave man, after terrible hardship, even travelled right across Canada to the Rocky Mountains. This is still a very long journey by the fastest trains. But La Verandrie, as this man was called, had no train to go by. He simply struggled on, sometimes fighting with wild beasts, sometimes with Indians. Often he had very little to eat for days together. George Washington other Frenchmen traveled south to the colony of Louisiana and founded the large town which is called New Orleans. It was through these Frenchmen, who were trying to get as much land as they could to the south of Canada, that a young man, who afterwards became very famous, first came to learn how to fight. George Washington had not much chance of education in the things most boys and girls of his age are expected to know now. Most of what he knew he had taught himself. He could spell and write good English, which very few colonists could do. He also liked mathematics. But he learned other things which were much more valuable for him. He had finished his schooling when he was fifteen. He had, on the whole, been happy, though his father died when he was young. He could shoot, hunt, fish, and look after the big plantations which had belonged to his father, and now belonged partly to his half-brother and partly to himself. He had learned other and harder lessons. The Washingtons lived on the borders of Virginia, and life was not very safe there. They might be attacked at any time by Indians or by the Frenchmen from the north. George learned to ride about amongst these dangers without any fear, and also to be cool and calm if he was attacked by man or beast. When he was only sixteen, he was sent to look after large plantations. Even then he knew exactly what he wanted, and was so wise and sensible that grown men respected him. When he was nineteen he had an attack of the dreadful disease of smallpox, which left marks on his face till he died. He was only just a man when the governor of Virginia chose him for a difficult task. The French, as we have seen, were pushing their settlements south, 
and the English colonists thought that they were taking some of the land which they looked on as their own. So George Washington was sent to tell them to go back. It was winter, and traveling was not easy, even if there had been no enemy near. But he made the journey. The French officers were very polite to him, but they told him to tell the governor that they meant to stay where they were. So Washington went back. He did not seem to have done much, but he had looked carefully at the country and had made up his mind where a fort should be built to keep the enemy back. Next year he was made a lieutenant-colonel and sent to fight the French and the Indians near the Ohio, where they had made their camp. He defeated them, but a month later had to give in and go back. The next year he went back again under General Braddock to try to take Fort Duquesne, which stood where the large American town Pittsburgh, with its huge smoky factories and iron foundries, now stands. General Braddock was a brave man and a good fighter, but he did not know how to fight against the French and Indians, and in the battle he was defeated and nearly all his men were killed. It was here that Washington first showed how brave a fighter he was. All over the battlefield he could be seen on horseback, cheering the men to fight harder. Many an Indian shot at him, and they could shoot well and straight, but somehow he escaped with some of his soldiers unharmed from the terrible battle. A few months after his return, he was made head of all the soldiers in Virginia. He was only twenty-three years old, but he defended the borders of Virginia against the enemy, and was one of the leaders when, three years later, Fort Duquesne was taken. The rest of his life belongs to the story of America, which is told in the next chapter. One of the most terrible things in this warfare between the French and English was done by the governor of Nova Scotia. This, as we have seen, was the first French settlement made in Canada, but it had been taken by the English. A great number of the people who still lived there, however, were simple French Catholics, who were quiet, peaceful farmers and traders. They were still Frenchmen at heart, loving the French king better than the king of England. In the year that General Braddock was defeated at Fort Duquesne, the governor of Nova Scotia suddenly seized six thousand of the French settlers and drove them from their homes and right out of Nova Scotia. In an instant their peaceful life was broken up. The country they loved, and in which they had lived so long, and their fathers before them, was to be theirs no longer. Many did not know where to go in their great sorrow. Some got as far south as Louisiana, others settled near Nova Scotia, and many years afterwards a few found their way back to the land of their birth again, after terrible suffering but most of them had seen it for the last time. General Wolfe But if there were Englishmen who acted with great cruelty, there were others who were so noble that their names will never be forgotten. 
the struggle for Canada, was now at its fiercest, and although the English had won some victories, it was seen by statesmen in England that the only way to take Canada was to take Quebec. Both French and English seemed to feel that this town was the key of Canada. It was built on a high rock which stood at the head of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. From the river it seems to be built on a precipice. On the west it is defended by steep cliffs called the Heights of Abraham, and although on the opposite side the land slopes more gently, this was naturally watched more carefully. The French general Montcalm was a brave man and a clever fighter, and when he thought that Quebec was to be attacked, he called together all the soldiers he could get, and brought them, with many French settlers and Indians, into the city to defend it. The leader of the English was General Wolfe, who had already fought in North America before. Before he started out from England again, he met a young lady with whom he fell in love. They were to be married when the war was over, and Wolfe was back again. Wolfe was a pale, slim man, rather delicate, but few men have ever been braver or cleverer. He had not nearly so many soldiers as Montcalm, and they were not soldiers who had had much training. But he had made up his mind to take Quebec. It was a dangerous thing to remain in the St. Lawrence, for in the winter the water freezes hard and the ships might be crushed to pieces. But Wolfe, although the autumn was coming on, made his camp on a little island in the river facing Quebec, and waited his chance to take the city. He set his guns to fire on the city, but they did not do much harm to it, and Wolfe saw that he must try to take Quebec in some other way. So he sailed down the St. Lawrence and tried to take Montcalm's camp below the city, but he was badly beaten, and many of his men were killed. He was now ill and depressed. He could hardly drag his weak body about. But he did not mean to give in, and when he felt a little stronger, he made a bold plan. Montcalm thought he was quite safe on the steep west side of the town, for he thought no army could climb the heights of Abraham and he did not believe that even the foot of them could be reached from the river. But Wolfe had found that from a tiny inlet from the St. Lawrence there was a footpath up the cliffs which led to the heights of Abraham. In the dead of night he sailed down the river with his men. Cloths had been wrapped round the oars so that no noise could be heard. No light was shown, and there was no moon." Somehow the soldiers climbed up the narrow footpath, surprised the soldiers at the top, and when daylight came Montcalm was astounded to see nearly four thousand English soldiers on the heights of Abraham ready to attack Quebec. But even yet the city was not won. Montcalm brought up his soldiers for battle, and at first the English were driven back but Wolfe made his men wait until the French came nearer, and then all fire at once. 
men fell along the French line, and before they could form up again the English rushed upon them. But Wolfe was wounded. As he lay dying and full of pain, he heard his soldiers cry, "'They run! See how they run!' "'Who run?' the dying leader asked, and was told, "'The enemy!' He was quite satisfied, and saying, "'Now, God be praised, I will die in peace,' he closed his eyes and died. Montcalm was also wounded, and died the next day. Five days afterwards, on the 11th September, 1759, Quebec was given up to the English, and when the Peace of Paris was made in 1763, the whole of New France was given up to the English. This is how Canada became English instead of French. But the country was not allowed many years of peace to settle down and grow, though the English government, which was treating the American colonists so unreasonably, acted very wisely towards the Canadians. The country was to be governed from Quebec, and the Catholics were to be treated as well as they had ever been under the French. Only the English punishments for breaking the law were brought in, and in other things the French laws were allowed. The result of this wise treatment was soon seen, for when an army of American soldiers invaded Canada at the beginning of the American War of Independence, hoping to get the French to join them against England, they were disappointed. The Americans took Montreal, but were not able to take Quebec. But the War of American Independence was very important for Canada, the United States and Canada became two separate countries, and many of the American colonists, who would not give up the King of England, left their lands and went to find new homes in Canada. The Americans would not give them any money for the farms and lands they left behind them, and these new men of Canada did not soon forget it. The new Canadians were equal to more than half all the Frenchmen in Canada, and many of them settled in the land which is now called Ontario. Here, and in the other places where they made their homes, they were given large pieces of land to live on and grow corn upon, and they were also given spades and ploughs in place of those they had left behind but it is easy to understand why the new Canadians did not at first get on very well with the older colonists. They were English and Protestants, while the older colonists were French and Catholics. It was not long before it was thought that it would be wise to let the people of Ontario govern themselves, while the people in Quebec made laws only for those people who lived in that part of Canada. Yet, however badly the English and French in Canada might disagree, they did not intend to join the Americans. And so, when in the year 1812 the United States were at war with Great Britain and tried to take Canada, their soldiers were driven back. There were some, however, though not very many, of the French Canadians who did not like being ruled by an English governor, and rebellions took place. 
The leader in one of these, Louis Papineau, wished to make the people of the Quebec, part of Canada, join the United States. But there were very few rebels, and the rebellion was easily put down. One thing which happened just after this was the joining of Quebec to Ontario. The two provinces did not agree very well at first, but thirty years later, in 1867, other settlements in Canada joined with them. The colonies called Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Prince Edward Island were thinking of joining together, and Ontario and Quebec suggested that they should all join. This was agreed to, and the British Parliament passed the law which made them one on 1st July, which has ever since been kept as the birthday of the Dominion of Canada. But this was but a very small part of Canada as it is today. Other huge tracts of land lay to the north and west, much of this belonged to the hudson bay company which was founded in sixteen seventy to trade in furs and skins the company had made settlements round the lower part of hudson bay and over the country west of ontario the dominion of canada wanted this large and fertile country to join with the rest of canada and the Hudson Bay Company agreed at the end of 1869 to give up their land to the Queen for a sum of money. But this did not please many of the people who lived in the colonies the Company had founded. One of these colonies was called the Red River Settlement, and it lay round the town which is now called Winnipeg, but was then called Fort Garry. Many of the men who lived in the Red River settlement were half-breeds, that is, half-French and half-Indian, or partly English and partly Indian, and they feared that when the settlement became part of Canada there would be changes that they would not like. Louis Riel, one of these half-breeds, persuaded the men to rebel, they made him their leader, and shot an Englishman who refused to join them. This made the people of the Dominion very angry, and Colonel Garnett Wolseley, who was afterwards called Lord Wolseley, was sent to punish them. He marched as far as he could, sailed over the Lake Superior, and took Fort Garry. Three years after this, all the settlements in Canada had joined the Dominion, but Louis Riel, who had escaped in 1870, lived to persuade some people to rebel again. This second time, in 1885, there was much fighting, and Riel was caught and hanged. In the same year, the great Canadian Pacific Railway, joining the east to the far west of Canada, was opened. There has been no fighting since. Canada has gone on, growing richer and more fertile every day. New towns spring up almost like magic. New states have been formed. There are miles of wheat fields, huge canals, and railways ever growing. The Canadians are very loyal to Great Britain, and their soldiers were sent to help the British in the South African War. A royal prince, the king's uncle, represents King George in Canada. 
the Canadians are building great ships of war to help the British Navy, and thousands of men and women leave the shores of Britain every year to become Canadians, and live healthy, open-air lives under the fair skies of the Dominion. End of chapter 40